Uh, we're in week three of deconverting. So if you're just joining us, um, or if you've already forgotten, you can always go back to uh, intuon.ca and look up our message archive, and you can go back and you can hear what we uh, talked about in the first two weeks. Um, you can listen to it, or you can share it with somebody else who you think might benefit from what we've been talking about. And hopefully, we will be, we either will have, or we will be answering some of the questions that maybe, uh, maybe you've been wrestling with for a long, long time. Now, previously on deconverting, we began a discussion um, around the, uh, the tension, the idea that the tension that many people feel, somewhere around 25% of the population have stopped, um, stepped into the category that is known as the nuns. And this is a group of people who are non-affiliated, uh, no religion. The majority of these people have stepped away from Christianity, and that works out to be about 35% of millennials. And that is about 25% of the total population. And maybe, maybe you're in that category. Maybe, uh, maybe that's you. If it's not you, you almost for sure know someone who is in that category. And it's not hard to understand why this has happened. There are, there are so many unsettling things about God. There's some uh, unsettling things about religion or theism. Uh, there are unsettling things. There are mysterious things about the Bible. And those things are well known here. We are not hiding from those things. Lots of questions arise. Um, and sometimes great answers don't appear. And I understand that there are there's also challenges. I, I, know, I know that putting the check in that, the atheist box is, is also unsettling. The idea of a creatorless universe, uh, as, as unsettling as religion is, an undesigned universe driven by unseen and unknown natural selection forces to purely mechanistic ends that have no meaning and no purpose, well, that's also unsettling. And it's hard to step into those places as well. And so that's the situation that we're in, right? More and more people deconverting. More and more people entering the nun category because you don't really have to defend this category. You don't have to explain this category. You just say, I'm, I'm just done. That's it. It's an easier place to rest. And sometimes people just want to find some peace. In the world of deconverting stories, there are two characteristics that arise again and again and again, uh, people who are deconverting tend to have one or both of these characteristics as part of their stories. The first one is a somebody told me so God. And second is uh, a Bible told me so Jesus. And so last time we talked about the different gods that maybe you grew up with, the ones that were in your childhood. Um, for example, one of them was bodyguard God, who never lets bad things happen to good people. And then you found out that bad things do happen to good people all the time. And so you figured out that that God doesn't exist. And we made a list of a bunch of them. And uh, you can go back, again, check out the other ones that were there. See if they can help you figure out why there might be a struggle in your faith. Uh, you can be reminded of those that are on the uh, message archive as well. So we said, if you have quit believing in any of those gods, good. Because they don't exist. And you were right to stop believing in them. So if you have lost faith or you're losing faith, it might be because the God that you grew up in, the God that you grew up believing in, never existed in the first place. That was all in part two. Characteristic number two for today, a Bible told me so 
Jesus. And this may be part of your version of Christianity that you grew up with. This may be part of the reason why you are struggling with faith. So, um, warning, please, all right? No getting drowsy today. We've turned the temperature down just to make sure that happens. Uh, you got to listen carefully so that um, you don't think that you heard something that you did not hear. So today is not the day to count the light bulbs in the room. This message might just give some of you permission to take a step back toward faith. This is not new stuff. We're not talking about things that have just been discovered. You can do a Google search after we're done. You can find everything that I'm going to say. Not back towards your childhood version. That's the version that you're outgrowing. But we're going to take a step towards Christianity as it was meant to be from the very beginning. So right off, I'm going to give you the first potential, oh my gosh, moment. Many of you were brought up to believe this. Jesus loves me. This I know. What's the next line? For the Bible tells me so. And this is where our trouble began. But don't leave, all right? Because the implication is, listen again, the implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. Okay? So what that statement teaches us is that I can believe in Jesus. I can believe that he loves me because it's in the Bible. And maybe you grew up hearing a statement like this. If the Bible says it, that settles it, right? And so we send our kids off to college and we say, uh, the Bible says it, that settles it. And this is the mindset that they have. And they go to university and they discover that just because the Bible said so, it doesn't seem to be necessarily all that settled. And they come home and they say, mom or dad, grandma, did you know? And, and then people, some people get a little bit of afraid and, and their eyebrows go up a little bit. There's mild shock. And so they decide that what they need to do is respond in the way that they know how to respond, but this time perhaps a little slower and perhaps a little louder. If the Bible says it, that settles it. And the problem is, if the Bible is the foundation for our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And here's the world that's set up by that. Christianity cannot survive if the Bible goes away. All of Christianity is called into question if every single spot, every single part of the Bible is not absolutely true. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then it's all or nothing. And this is why when you were growing up, every once in a while you'd bring information home from school and you would tell it to your parents or you'd tell it to your grandparents or maybe you would tell it to your pastor and they'd say, hey, guess what I learned in school today? And then they kind of just shut you down. We don't believe that. We are Christians. We don't believe that. Why did some of us grow up in a home, a religious home, where we were so fearful of science. The belief was all or nothing. If somebody proves that something in the Bible is not absolutely, actually, historically, scientifically reliable, uh-oh, the whole thing comes crumbling down. And this version of Christianity is a house of cards. All you have to do is pull out one card, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. 
Christianity becomes that fragile, fearful house of cards so that when you get into a conversation and people start asking about actual evidence, is there evidence for a worldwide flood? Is there actual evidence that we can see now of the exodus from Egypt? Or what, what about when people start to point out apparent contradictions in different parts of the Bible? Or you go to school and, and they tell you that there is no way that this earth is 6,000 years old. They say that the earth is more like 4.5 billion years old and the universe is 14.5 billion years old. And immediately, the tension flares up. But the Bible says, right? But the Bible says, and somebody, but, but science says, but the Bible says, and but science says, but the Bible says. And we just want to say, ah, just make it go away. Why is there all of this tension? In this view, if the entire Bible isn't true, the Bible isn't true. What are we to do? We were told if the Bible says it, that settles it. What are we going to do? We, 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 we grew up, and we met people, and we see things, and we hear things, and, and they make us wonder, is, is the Bible true? And then, like many people already have, some people come to the conclusion, well, maybe it isn't all true. Maybe it is not as true as we were told that it was. Well then, if the Bible isn't all true, then Christianity comes crashing down. Many people have felt the pressure to defend the Bible. It's an all-or-nothing battle, and if we lose this one, we've lost everything. Everything will fall apart. And so that has caused some people to, to take the Bible and they put it in the center of the big debate. The Bible is spotlighted. The Bible gets the focus. It's put the Bible in a place where if we can't, all of us, if we can't defend everything in it, then everything in it goes away. And we certainly know that this is the view of many of the people who argue against Christianity. This is a standard argument against Christianity. The good news is, this is unfortunate. The great news is, this is absolutely unnecessary. Christianity and the Christian faith is far, far, far more resilient than any of that might make you feel. Christianity is not fragile. It is not tenuous. So if, if you deconverted, if you walked away kind of frustrated with your hands in the air over this issue because of something you read in the Bible or because something that somebody else told you was in the Bible, I want you to please listen carefully. Because at the end, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you at the end. I want to invite you to take a step back towards faith in God. Not your childhood faith. It's time that that faith grew up. But there is a grown-up version. There is an adult strength version that is far less fragile than if the Bible says it, that settles it. So here we go. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Your birth certificate documented something that happened. 
And the New Testament, I'm not talking about the whole Bible right now, the New Testament documents, the New Testament documents document something that happened. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It's the other way around. Here's why I say that. But to do that, you get one history lesson thrown in for free. No good history lesson uh, goes without a timeline. So strap in the kids, because here we go. Get ready. First thing we have to get straight. In the first century, when Jesus was alive and walking around, they would use the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we use, okay? Which means that the dates get a little bit out of whack. That's why there's a problem in the dating. So back around 525 AD, somebody came up with the bright idea that um, all of history should be reoriented around the birth of Christ. So we get the AD and BC, not AC DC. Uh, while there might have been thunder, this is certainly not about being thunderstruck. Uh, unfortunately, in 525, they weren't ah, able to accurately gauge when this happened. So in the 16th century, we get the Gregorian calendar that we use. That's the one that's now integrated with AD and BC. We get that all put together. And when they did that, they, they were able to figure out at that point, when it was too late, uh, that Jesus was actually born two or three years before his birth, all right? So because of the calendar issues, Jesus was actually born in two or three BC, not zero. He was totally ahead of his time. Uh, but here's where the timeline, uh, we jump into the timeline of awesomeness, for real. At around 30 AD, Jesus was crucified, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And about two and a half months after that, the church was launched. And in 30 AD, several dozen Jewish people went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they started to tell everyone, you crucified him. God raised him. We've seen him say you're sorry. You crucified him right here in this city. And God raised him from the dead. We, all of us, we've all seen him. You need to say you're sorry. You need to get right. You need to get straightened out with God now. And thousands of people in Jerusalem embraced a risen Savior. Not 50 years later, just a few weeks after the actual resurrection. When that happened, the church was born. The next important date on the timeline of terrificness is 70 AD. The Roman legions destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. 66 AD, Four years before, Vespasian came down from Galilee and he started to roll up uh, through towns and villages and cities and pushing, coming from the north to the south, heading towards Jerusalem. He was assigned to once and for all put down this stinking Jewish revolt, the Jewish rebellion against Rome. And when he approached the city of Jerusalem, basically he had funneled everyone from the north, heading down to the south, he funneled them all into Jerusalem. So all the people who were in rebellion, all the different factions, all the different gangs, all the people who were trying to take power from Rome and then run the country. He funneled them all into the walled city of Jerusalem. And then he went to Rome and he eventually became emperor. But he left his son Titus to finish up this plan. And Titus built a ditch and an earth wall 
all the way around the city of Jerusalem. Day after day, on that wall, he um, crucified hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands of Jews outside that city as a threat for them to watch. And eventually the walls of Jerusalem were breached. August 6th, the year 70, the Roman soldiers went into the city and they burned down the temple. They enslaved tens of thousands, some historians say hundreds of thousands. So many new slaves that they radically drove down the price in the slave markets all the way from Jerusalem up to and including Rome. The Jews were eventually expelled from the city. No Jews allowed in Jerusalem at all. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people died. That is 70 AD. The reason that that date is so important to us, none of what I just described to you is referenced in any of the New Testament documents that eventually became our New Testament. So, one of the mysteries of history is why is there no reference to an event? It wasn't a day. It was more like five years, but certainly four intense years where it was dangerous to live in Galilee, where it was dangerous to live in the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish people lived under constant threat, heightened threat. It was a horrible time across all of Israel. And with all of that happening and all of that suffering, there is no record of any of that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts, which chronicles all kinds of international moves in the development of the church. There is no mention of it in any of the 27 individual ancient historical manuscripts that have been bound together into what eventually became known as the New Testament. The only logical probable explanation is that it hadn't happened yet, which means that all of the New Testament manuscripts were probably written before the destruction of the temple, which means that they were likely all written between 49 and 69 AD. But it's a little bit, let's be a little bit more open-minded about that. There's a number of scholars who like to say, well, we're uncomfortable with those dates. Maybe it was a little bit later. So let's extend that time. Let's not just say 69. Let's move it all the way to make them happy, and we'll say 86 AD. The reason that that is important, that these documents were written, is that when they were written, the eyewitnesses to what Jesus, to who Jesus was and to what Jesus had done were still alive. Now, I'm going to do some guessing. I'm guessing if you've heard any of this information before, if you've heard any of these dates before, you were told that the word on the street was that these, excuse me, these documents were all written at 90 AD as the earliest, and then some of them much, much later. But there is no evidence for that. None evidence is how much we have for that. The reason that some scholars want to push back on earlier dates in the New Testament, that they want to push them out to like the 300s, really, because it's because of the miracles, and specifically because of the resurrection of Jesus. Their story goes like this. Well, everybody liked Jesus, right? Everyone wanted to believe that he was alive. So lots of people started to say, I've seen him. I've seen him around. And as time went by, and as time went by, and as time went by, and, and, and through oral tradition, these stories got inflated as time went by. And then somebody wrote them down. 
And it takes about 70 years for legend to sound like history. The problem is that nobody references a point in time, 70 AD, in which if you are Jewish, and if you are living in the vicinity of Jerusalem, the city, or Judea, the province, or Galilee, the region, how in the world could you not at least in passing make a reference to what was going on while you are writing a document about recent history? 70 AD is a date that's internationally and interculturally known as the date, a fundamental shift in the Jewish nation and the religion. The effects of that shift are still felt to this day. There is still no Jewish temple. That seems virtually impossible. The vast majority of all the real evidence points to the, these documents being written between 49, 50, 52, and 69. But let's be generous. Let's expand it out. Let's say 86. Now, here's the part that you don't care about at all. But this is so important if you're going to analyze this, especially if you've walked away from Christianity because of something to do with the Bible. The New Testament writers, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they did not write this as if it was a story. There are stories written centuries before Jesus and centuries after Jesus, and they kind of use a story motif. There's a way to do it. There's a style before and after Jesus. And the people, when they're writing fiction, use it. It makes it all kind of sound similar. The gospel writers did not do that. They wrote what they wrote as if they were writing history. And here's just one example. Now, this comes from the Gospel of Luke. And when you read the New Testament, you find sections like this, and you blow by them. This is not important. Let me get to the important stuff, right? Jesus changed my life. Uh, that's what I want. But this stuff is so important. I want you to see the extent that Luke goes to to pin himself down to a specific historical context. Because if he was writing history, he wanted his, be, his readers to be able to fact-check him. So it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Right. So when did this happen? Like, you've got all kinds of reference points there. It's a big deal, because um, we're not talking about the Bible, okay? We're talking about a guy, a person, who wrote something. His name is Dr. Luke, and he wrote a document which we now call the Gospel of Luke. And this is Luke's way of saying, look at it, fact check me. This wasn't that uh, a long, long ago, or uh, back when the Romans ruled the world, or a long time ago in a place far away. He says the story that I'm going to tell you is narrative history. And I really want to pin it down. I really want you to be able to find the specific time and the place because this stuff actually happened. Go ahead. Check it out. If you're making something up and you want somebody to believe it, you would never add this kind of specific time-stamped information. It's too risky. He's not writing it now saying it those dates. He's writing it then saying these are the dates. It's too easy to prove that you're just making it up. When Luke wrote what he wrote, there were still people alive. The eyewitnesses were there who would know what really happened. You could just go and ask them. 
All of these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul's epistles, all of these documents are so valuable to the first century church. What do they do with them? They start photocopying them, right? Everybody wants to have their own copies. If this is good, I want to have my own. I don't want to hear about yours. I want to see my own. Um, so everybody wants to have those copies. You go, oh, right, no photocopying. They began to meticulously copy these documents. In the first century, there is an explosion of documents and documentation about the life of Jesus and the copies of the letters from uh, Peter and Paul and James. There is nothing to match this in all of ancient history. Nothing. There is nothing to match this until we get to the creation of the printing press, which happened somewhere around 1445. The idea that so many people would write so many things and meticulously copy the core essential teachings of the church for it to circulate the way that it did, there has never been anything like that. There has never been anything close to that. These documents were distributed from Rome to Jerusalem, to Constantinople, to Egypt, all around the whole Mediterranean rim. Thousands of these documents. And so when people casually say, ah, you know what, you can't trust the Bible, right? It's just full of errors. Just think about those people writing. Anytime you write stuff, there's going to be errors. Of course there must be errors. And in a polite way, that is just ignorant. That's just somebody that doesn't want to take a look, take the time to look at the facts. They are content with their own preferences, never mind the facts. Those are the, that's when the facts are just getting in the way of what I want to believe. It's, it's a laziness. If you are really interested in discovering the truth, if you are really interested in reawakening your faith, the facts are overwhelming. Let me ask you a question. What do you make copies of? You make copies of things that are important. You, you, you throw away stuff all the time, right? We, we, we all do that, but it's different when it's a handmade copy. Wax tablets and the other things that they wrote with and wrote on were so expensive and so precious, it's even more evidence of how valuable and how precious these documents were were to them. They were not writing new things. They weren't writing commentaries on what they heard or their own opinions. They were copying and distributing these letters, these gospels, all over the place. So people push back, right? And they say, well, there are mistakes, right? Anybody who is writing something, they're going to make mistakes. It's there. And we say, absolutely. There are thousands of variations in these documents partially because they were dispersed so broadly. Here's some great news. There are thousands of documents to compare to each other. And guess what? If you own an English study Bible in the footnotes of a Bible that you might already own, you have listed for you the variations. So you can see. You can look them up. You can actually see if they make any difference to what is being said. And so if you want to look... Footnotes will say stuff like, in an earlier document, it says, or other manuscripts record, or this is the way it's said in other places. And do you know what? There's nothing to hide. 
The variances in these documents make no difference historically or theologically. Zero. There are, there, there's not a whole bunch of, uh, a whole batch of documents that say Jesus died on the cross and, and, and a whole bunch that say uh, Jesus died falling off a ladder when he was fixing the roof of the house, right? There's no big changes. There's no big variations. The people were being incredibly careful. And for our perspective, it's really hard to imagine their life and their context and what it's like. But try to think about it from their perspective. They did not make copies of the Gospels because they believed they were inspired. They made copies of the Gospels because they believed that they were true. Time marches on. Back to the timeline. These documents have circulated really over the whole known world. And then in 312, something extraordinary happens. Constantine defeated the other emperors. There were actually three Roman emperors at the time, Maxentius, Lysanus, Constantine. Three go into battle, one comes out. Then Constantine is now the undisputed emperor of the entire Roman Empire. Here's another mystery of history. During that time, between the resurrection of Jesus, 30 AD, and when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, 312, during that whole time, Christianity grew and grew, and they gained influence. And these are the persecution years. These are the good old throw them to the lions years. These are the years that Christianity was officially identified and targeted for abuse and persecution. Homes and property seized. Work restrictions applied. Despised by the government so that you could walk anywhere and you could hear the neighbors talking about all those Christians. In those years, Christianity grew. And it grew. And it grew under constant threat of deadly peril. It is unexplainable. Constantine's mother became a Christian before Christianity was even legal. In spite of the fact that Rome had a vast pantheon of gods that they worshipped, and in spite of the fact that Rome was eternal, which meant that no one could ever, would ever defeat Rome, the Romans said that the reason that they were so powerful, the reason that they are so successful, is that they have the favor of the gods. Who can stand against them? And yet, without the favor of the gods, or the Romans, Christianity grew and spread. And eventually, Constantine lifted the prohibition of Christian worship in the Roman Empire. Eventually, he embraces Christianity. But, and here's what most historians will tell you. Constantine, and this is a significant historical insight, Constantine didn't embrace Christianity because he was uh, particularly interested in Jesus or in the teachings of um, the New Testament folks of Christianity. Constantine embraced Christianity to unify the empire. Do you know what the significance of that is? This is staggering. Constantine is thinking to himself, there used to be three emperors. People are, are divided all over the place. I've got to find me something 
that can stitch us back together, to unify us into one great nation. I need to find something that most people in the empire have in common. And it's not the Roman gods anymore. That was a highly significant spread of Christianity in the most difficult years. Why am I telling you this? Why is this important to what we started to talk about today? Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible even existed. The Christian faith grew from 30 to the time of Constantine, not on the back of the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament, they were not combined with the New Testament until 350 A.D. That's the first existing copy that we have. So when you hear people criticize the Bible and they say, it's not current, right? It was written long after. The Bible wasn't even written until around 400 A.D. This is the story that they are misreading. The Bible didn't exist until 350. The Jewish scriptures were not called the Old Testament until about 130 A.D. The New Testament didn't show up until about 220 A.D. Why did it take so long? Because it was illegal until then. Not only that, it was hugely expensive. You couldn't even have access to the Jewish scriptures without being in a synagogue. It took Constantine becoming the emperor and having the wealth and the influence to allow scribes and scholars to gather all the documents and put them together. They were still arguing about which of the first century Christian documents should become part of what would eventually be known as the New Testament. The Bible, as we know it, as we take for granted, the oldest copy that we have is 350 years after Jesus. The first time that the term Bible was put as a label on this collection of the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament writings is about 33 years after that, 388 A.D. Here's the point. Here's the showstopper, all right? Before the Old Testament and the New Testament were combined and titled the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Rome, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods, and it was the state religion of the Roman Empire. All that before anyone ever held one in their hand before anyone ever have a floppy covered one and shook it at people. It wasn't until right around the, um, the invention of the printing press that someone ever held one in their hand. The first, second, third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. Peter, James, John, Luke, and all the others didn't decide to follow Jesus because of an infallible Old Testament or because of a non-contradicting New Testament. Their story is not one of textual criticism or archaeological analysis or skeptics looking back on events and questioning the presence of hard evidence for that today. 
Peter would say, you know what, I'm not even sure what you're all talking about. But let me tell you what I know. I watched my friend die in front of my eyes. And then some ladies came knocking on my door a couple of days later. We went to go check out the tomb. It, it was empty. And then later on, I had breakfast with my friend who was dead. Only he wasn't dead anymore. And we ate together on the beach. That's what I know. That's what I lived. He told us he was going to be killed. He told us he was going to be resurrected. Both happened. He was right. I trust him before and above everything else. My faith doesn't hang by a thread verifying everything mentioned in the Old Testament. I'm Jewish, all right? I grew up with the Jewish scriptures. I love the Jewish scriptures, but I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the Jewish scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because he rose from the dead. For the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not on a book. In the first 300 years, no one ever asked, is the Bible true? The question that it all hung on was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew said, oh yes, he did. And Mark said, oh yes, he did. And Luke said, yes, he did. And John said, yes, he did. And Peter said, oh yes, he did. And James the brother of Jesus, said, oh yes, he did. And then a fire-breathing Pharisee named Paul, who was trying to put the church out of business, becomes a raving fan and he dedicates his life to taking this story to the Gentiles. He wanted them to know about Jesus and he took that story all over the Roman world. There is no explanation for the success of the church if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. The success of the church is not the Bible tells me so. There was no Bible to tell them so. The success of the church was totally built around eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And so when Easter comes around, and it's coming soon, we're going to say that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but not because the Bible said so. It's better than that. Christianity is not hanging by a thread. Christianity is not hanging in nervousness, hiding behind, well, the Bible tells me so. So if you grew up in a church that said, the Bible says it and that settles it, I understand. For generations in North America, no one questioned the authority of the Bible. That was a good thing. The bad thing is that we shifted our focus we adjusted our spotlight. We refocused our apologetic to defending the Bible. And unfortunately for you, if you were one of those who went off to university, or you grew up into an adulthood, and you ran into information that, that made the Bible, from, from your perspective, indefensible. And then it became a house of cards, because that is that's all you ever knew it to be. All or nothing. And all somebody had to do was show you a part, one section. What about this? 
that section, one section that's questionable, and the whole thing came tumbling down. If, if that's not true, well then I guess nothing's true. And many of you were glad that it did. Because you didn't really want to be a Christian anyways. It was just where you were born. And now you had an intellectual reason to walk away from a faith that was just hampering the lifestyle that you wanted to lead. And all I want to say is this. That version of Christianity is a modern version of Christianity. It is not the original version. Because the original version was defensible. It was persecutable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. It was compelling and it was endurable. So now that you're an adult, part of that little song that you learned when you were growing up, part of that song is still true. The first part. Jesus does love you. The second part has a lot more baggage with it. The second part is perhaps what your adult faith needs to question and wrestle with. Jesus loves you. This you know. For John, who watched his friend die and then had breakfast with him on the beach a couple of days later, tells you so. And Jesus loves you. This you know. For Luke, thoroughly investigated all of the events and interviewed eyewitnesses to make sure it was so. Jesus loves you, this you know. For the Apostle Paul, who hated Christians, risked his life to tell you so. Jesus loves you, this you know. For all of Jesus' original followers, all of the disciples were martyred because they believed it was so. And Jesus loves you, this you know, because the early church defied an empire and the temple because they were convinced it was so. And the reason you should reconsider Christianity, the reason that there's a way to come back to the faith of your childhood, not the faith of your childhood, the, the grown-up version of that faith, the reason that you don't have to, 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 to stay forever separated because of your unanswered questions, the reason has very little to do with a book, but it has everything to do with a person. It has everything to do with the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus answered that question, and then he punctuated that answer by rising from the dead. And fortunately for us, those who were closest to the event, those who were eyewitnesses to the event, they documented it. But they did not document what they believed. They documented what they saw. So if you stepped away from the Bible because it didn't add up, I want to challenge you to reconsider because the issue really isn't the Bible. The issue really is and always has been Jesus. Christianity didn't disrupt an empire because of a true Bible. Christianity disrupted an empire because of a resurrected Savior. A Savior who loves you. This I know. Because He died for your personal sin to prove that it was so. Let me pray for you. Kind Father, thanks for a place where it's okay to ask and it's okay to question. It is okay to doubt. Thanks for the story that we were a part of where men and women risked 
and gave their lives to get these precious documents into circulation. Father, I pray for the men and women who are struggling to believe. Would you bring peace and discontent at the same time? A peace to the spirit and a discontent to the mind. I just need to keep searching until I can find satisfying answers. Give these in uncertain pursuit the courage to look up. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe for the first time ever. And look for you. And then will you just move in that way that you move to just make us aware of your presence. Thanks. I pray all this in the name of our risen Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen.